So today's reading is coming from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. So the beginning of 1 Peter. Oh, oh, and that's on page 857 in the Red Pew Bibles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 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 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from, from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even which perishes even through even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed though you have not seen him you love him and even though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was, appoint was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Okay, well let's bow in prayer now as we come to uh, consider God's word. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word and we pray now that by your spirit that you would be enlightening our minds and our hearts that uh, we would be people whose lives are marked by faith, hope and love. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Saviour. Amen. We Christians are increasingly finding ourselves uh, on the fringe of our society. Because of what we believe and, and, and how we live. Australia has never really been what some people call a Christian country. But uh, Christianity has shaped our values and has shaped our laws uh, since colonisation by Europeans. So that uh, as recently as maybe, I don't know, 30 years ago, uh, Christian morals were at least considered to be the norm in our society. Uh, and yet now, even though we may express our views with a degree of 
thoughtfulness and, and, and gentleness on issues such as sex and marriage and the, the value of human life, the value of un, the unborn child and so on, that we can sometimes find ourselves being, um, well, being ridiculed, even being attacked uh, for expressing what we think 30, 40, 50 years ago were just normal values that most people seem to hold to. And the same goes for our core beliefs. Uh, the media keeps on rolling out this idea that, uh, that uh, somehow that science has made God redundant. And so uh, Christians are in various ways, sometimes actively, sometimes passively, uh, dismissed as being somehow less, uh, less intelligent uh, than normal people uh, or more uh, psychologically needy than normal people, uh, despite the fact that uh, many of us are actually quite intelligent and highly educated and that there's a, uh, a good number of highly regarded scientists who name Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. But the differences between Christians and non-Christians in Australia, <clears throat> from my observations, have widened. And we find ourselves at odds with uh, people whom we uh, connect with, our family members, our, uh, our, our friends, our workmates, and certainly very much so uh, with respect to the media. That's a, it's a bleak picture. It's not the full picture, of course, but it's an increasing reality of what it can be like to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in Australia in the early part of the 21st century. And I believe that that's one of the reasons why uh, when we delve into 1 Peter, we find that 1 Peter does actually connect with, uh, with our minds and our hearts and, and our experience uh, because when, if you open up 1 Peter, you see that the, we get a bit of a snapshot of the kinds of people uh, to whom uh, this letter was written. And the, the opening verses of 1 Peter uh, are quite instructive and a, a helpful starting point in that regard. Because as you have a look at the first verse, uh, where Peter introduces himself, he says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle means someone who's been sent, and the important person is not the one who's been sent. The important person is the one who has done the sending. And so uh, whilst there's an authority that comes with being an apostle, it's a delegated authority uh, from the one who is the important one, and that is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to then talk about those to whom he is writing. And he describes them as being to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, when we think about those place names, it's easy for us to kind of skip over that, isn't it? And think, well, I don't know what that's about. It's not important. I'll just move on to the next part of uh, the verse. And uh, I mean, Cappadocia, you know, sounds like a type of coffee, doesn't it? Uh, Asia, when we think of Asia, we think of, you know, the nations just to the north of Australia. But in the first century, these were Roman provinces 
which, uh, covered, which covered most of what we would call modern-day Turkey. And uh, I'm going to throw a map of uh, that on the uh, screen for you there. And so you can see uh, some of those places that are mentioned, Bithynia and Pontus, uh, Asia over here, Galatia. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is all Turkey. Uh, Turkey extends out further to the, to the east. And it's a really important um, part of the world in the ancient uh, world. This uh, stretch of water here, it's called the Bosphorus. And that's where uh, Istanbul is, is built on. Uh, that actually is the border between two continents uh, because Asia is to the east and Europe is to the west. Uh, what continent is Istanbul built on? Is it Europe or is it Asia? It's both, isn't it? So it actually straddles two continents. And so that's the, that's the part of the world that we're talking about. It's very important uh, in the New Testament. Um, Asia, by the way, is just an ancient word. It's a, both a Greek word and a Latin word, which means the place where the sun rises. And so if you're in Greece or in Rome, then which is out further to the west, then, then Asia certainly is to the east, but it's the place where you'd look for the sun to rise. That's what it means. Um, Cappadocia... Well, I've got to show you this photo. That's the place where people go to today to do what? Hot air ballooning. It's very famous uh, for its hot air ballooning, and particularly because of the uh, amazing um, geographical formations uh, in Cappadocia. Uh, some people, someone described these places that uh, Paul's readers live in as being, and I quote, a fantastic conglomeration of territories, an amazing part of the world geographically with uh, coastline, with uh, amazing mountain ranges, with um, uh, impressive lakes and river systems and the kind of place where you just love to go hot air ballooning because it just looks so otherworldly. But what was more diverse were the peoples who lived in these places. A vast array of, of different races, of um, different languages, uh, different customs, different religions, different political histories. Uh, this, the people who lived in these places were not particularly uniform or united. They were extremely diverse. Um, such as Galatia, for example, where uh, the, the, the reason we call Galatia Galatia is because the people who lived there were Gauls. They spoke Gallic, and the Gallic people are like Celtic people that moved up to France. And so if you're Anglo-Celtic, then there's a bit of a connection there. There is great diversity. Uh, although, and although there would have been some uh, Jewish Christians uh, in the churches to whom Peter writes, it does seem that most of these Christians living in these places were, in fact, of Gentile background. Now, let me just sort of give you a couple of pointers uh, to that in uh, 1 Peter itself. If you have a look at um, chapter 1, verse 18, let me read that, what Peter says to them there in verse 18. He says, For you know that it was not with 
perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Uh, You wouldn't normally expect Peter to talk to a Jewish congregation and talk about an empty way of life that was handed down to them from their forefathers. He would talk about you've been handed down the law and the prophets and the covenants. He's talking to Gentiles here. Uh, Another example in chapter 2, verse 10, if you just go over the page, in 2, verse 10, and there, speaking to these Christians, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, Peter would not write to a Jewish congregation, or predominantly Jewish congregation, and say that you were once not a people that you once had not received mercy, because they were the people, they had received mercy. Now, it seems that he's talking here to, to Gentiles. Uh, a, and it's a, it's a diverse range of peoples um, scattered across what's described as a fantastic conglomeration of territories. But yet, in the opening to the, his letter, he can really speak to them as though they are not a diverse range of peoples, but actually one people, one people. And here he says that they, he describes them as being um, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, it's always been God's plan for this diverse group of people to be one people. God chose them for that very purpose. And he says that they've been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit because it's the Spirit who has opened up their eyes and has changed their hearts so that they are now, in a quote, obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled by his blood. Now, when you think about sprinkling by blood, that sounds like Old Testament kind of language, doesn't it? That's kind of like Israel and sacrifices, Israel and covenants. But this is now the same concept but applied to a new people of God. A new people of God of all kinds of peoples, of all kinds of races and languages and backgrounds, but they are now one people, God's people. Notice what else Peter calls them in verse 1. He refers to them in verse 1 as being exiles or strangers in the world, as it's translated there in your your Bibles. Uh, they're They're like Israel. When Israel was exiled into Babylon, God's people, but living amongst those who do not know God and do not seek to obey him. And now these Gentiles, these, it is these Gentiles who are considered to be God's chosen people living amongst those who do not know God. And I, I take it that that's sometimes the way that we feel, isn't it? It is our situation. Uh, it is us. We are God's people. And we're living amongst people who do not uh, know and, and love our Saviour. I don't know what the statistics are, I haven't checked them recently, but I work on a basic rule of thumb that it's probably somewhere between 3 and 5% of Australians who are Christians, who truly, 
trust Jesus and uh, love him and place their hopes in him. Um, And you might think about the uh, people that you mix with at work, unless you're working in a Christian school or church, that um, how many people you know in your workplace or in your neighbourhood or in your retirement village who truly, genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, it's often the case that we find that we, we're actually the only, only one, that we might be the only one or, or one amongst just two or three Christians uh, amongst the many people that we mix with. Uh, I know it's uh, not scientific, but um, as an interesting uh, case example, something which was tangible, uh, when our son was living in a residential college at the ANU, there were 200 students, and of those 200 students, there were five or six who were Christians. So I think that works out at 25 to 3%. It's not a sign, you know, you can't spread that across the whole of the Australian population, but that was just one little, my little case study um, amongst that sample group. And we need encouragement. We need encouragement. And that's what Peter is aiming to do with these Christians to whom he's writing. How does he encourage them? Well, in verses 3 through to 6, he starts by reminding them of their living hope. Now, Australia is a very blessed nation. Uh, We're one of the most blessed nations in the world. The Bank Swiss put out a report where they uh, listed nations in terms of the median personal wealth, that is what the normal person in that uh, country owns, and they rated Australia as the richest country in the world um, by that criteria. And, And that means that we're probably the richest people that have ever lived in terms of the ordinary person and their wealth. Uh, We live very well, but yet we live, so many people live without any real hope, uh, any real hope beyond the grave. Now, in some senses, that was not dissimilar to the kinds of people that um, these Christians were living amongst. The the places where Peter's readers lived, I I mean, when I think of Turkey today, I don't think of a particularly... uh, flash sort of country. Uh, but Turkey in the first, that, that region in the first century and, and earlier than that was, was really like a hub of, of civilization, And it was, um, uh, Peter's readers were, uh, were people who would have been immersed in Greek and, and Roman culture. And, and in many ways it was, a, it was a very sophisticated world in which they lived. And we recognise that today, that intellectually and philosophically, artistically, poetically, architecturally and so on, we, we marvel at the things which people did uh, in that time and in that place. And yet there was one thing which distinguished the early Christians from their pagan neighbours, and that was hope. Hope beyond the grave. Uh, to these minority Christians, Peter begins not by offering sympathy. He says, oh, hey guys, I know it's really tough living amongst so many people who don't know 
the Lord. Rather, he begins by actually praising God. And he praises God for their hope. Let's have a look at that verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here that he's, he, he, he's, not just, he's not just any God that he's praising. It's not just any God amongst the pantheon of, of gods that were worshipped at that time and that place. Peter nails it. Peter specifies who God is, that, that, that he is the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we need to be clear about that as well because in our society we need to be crystal clear that Allah is not God, that, that, um, uh, that Buddha is not divine, uh, that Hinduism has no true gods, that there is only one God and his son is Jesus Christ. We need to be clear on that. This is not a matter of arrogance. It's something which we're grateful for because of what he has done for us. Again in verse 3, in his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. He has given us new birth. Now, how do we experience that new birth? Well, it's not something which we do ourselves. We can't. We can't rebirth ourselves. If you need to be born, that means that you're dead and we are dead in our sins. Uh, no, it's something which only God can do for us and what it required was for someone else to be born from the dead, for someone else to be raised from the dead. It required the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the pivotal point. Because of the resurrection of Jesus... It now means that we have a sure and a certain hope of life beyond the grave. And Peter calls it an inheritance. Now, inheritances are um, slippery things. You cannot pin your hopes on uh, a worldly inheritance, can you? You might think that you can. Uh, I was chatting with a guy just last weekend who was embroiled in a painstakingly long court case with his sisters over the mother's inheritance. Someone dies and the, the will, it looks absolutely genuine. It looks absolutely clear like the ordinary person look, walks in off the street could look at that and say, yeah, it's quite clear that the person intended for the house to go to person X but yet, so often it ends in the law courts. And people find that not only are their relationships eroded and destroyed, but what they hoped for financially is diminished, it's given to another, and a large proportion of it is consumed by legal fees. It's the lawyers who make the dough out of it. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, Israel's inheritance was the land of Canaan. They were to be God's people, living in God's place, under God's rule. But in the first century, who does Canaan belong to? 
belongs to the Romans. Uh, Canaan was just a model which pointed to the inheritance which Jesus has won for us. And it's an inheritance that is secure. It will never perish, never spoil, never, never fade. And this is our hope. And it's not kind of wishful thinking kind of hope. I mean, I sometimes talk to people and they say to me, well, you know, I hope that when I die I'll go to heaven. And like, they're completely unsure. They've got no confidence. I hope. That, that's not the hope that we have. The hope that we have is where the, the outcome has already been determined. You know what's ahead of you and it's keeping your eye on that that, uh, that gives you the motivation to keep on pressing towards that goal. It's that kind of hope. It's a sure and a certain hope. Guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's secure. Have a look at verse 4, the second part of verse 4. Uh, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that God is not just keeping our inheritance secure. Notice that as we keep on trusting in Jesus, that God's power is like a Roman soldier's shield, which is actually keeping us protected, keeping us secure, so that we, uh, that we are standing firm until the last day. Now, sometimes we might need a warning uh, to not treat God's salvation lightly. So the, the, the person who claims to follow Christ but is not actually caring too much about Jesus being uh, her Lord or his Lord, and such a person needs, needs to be warned. But not these Christians, because their faith was actually being proven to be genuine. Let me explain that. In the very early days of the Christian church, the, the Romans were not the ones who persecuted the Christians. Um, the, the Romans actually, and you can understand this, they considered the Christians to be a sect of Judaism. So they just considered the Christians to be Jews. And there were certain privileges that the Romans gave to the Jews um, so that they didn't have to bow down and worship Caesar, for example. And those privileges were extended to Christians because they simply thought that we were Jews, which is, in a sense, that's right. We are the true, true Jews. But as more Gentiles were converted and uh, became part of the church, that this, this link in the eyes of the Roman authorities, this link between Judaism and Christianity started, started to loosen up a fair bit. Now, it's most likely that Peter wrote this letter in uh, the year 63 AD. Uh, that by that stage, the attitude of the Roman authorities was starting to change towards Christians. Um, it was only a few months later, in 64 AD, that um, Emperor Nero uh, initiated the first 
uh, initiated his governmental um, persecution of Christians, uh, starting with the fire in Rome that he pinned the blame on Christians for. And it was in the persecutions of Nero that Peter himself was, was killed. He was martyred. So this is actually written pretty close to the end of Peter's life, um, but the, the big persecution had not yet started. But the, the Christians here may have known that something was brewing because in, in verse 6, when he talks about what they're suffering, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So grief seems to imply something a bit more serious than just being picked on for being a Christian. So there may be that element to it. But at the very least, it does tell us that they were having trouble living as Christians uh, in the environment in which they lived. So, for example, if you go over to chapter 4, chapter 4, just have a look at verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3, Peter says to them, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So that's you were pagans previously. Either that or you're very seriously backslidden Jews. <laughs> uh, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. That's, that's variety, isn't it? Right? That's who these people were. But in verse 4, this is really interesting because he says, they think, that is the others around you, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of, of dissipation. And what do they do? Well, they heap abuse on you. <laughs> they heap abuse on you because they can't actually deal with the reality that you're not going out with them and you know, sleeping around and, and doing all sorts of things. Um, I, I saw an elected federal politician on, uh, a, on a television panel. Um, I think it was ABC's Q&A. Uh, where he just very, uh, very arrogantly dismissed a a well-respected Christian leader who was also on the panel um, called him a dinosaur or in, 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 inferred that he was a dinosaur. That's it's offensive, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we get called, called haters as well. And I'm not sure which is worse, to be called a dinosaur or to be called a hater because of expressing just normal Christian morality. And I, I'm sure that, I know of course that there are actually many millions of Christians in the world who cop it far worse than we do. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but let's just go to the top of the list, North Korea. North Korea, 50,000 Christians today um, are imprisoned in concentration camps. It's 20% of the Christian population. One in five Christians in North Korea is tortured because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what has Peter done? How, how has Peter encouraged 
these first century Christians? Well, by firstly praising God and reminding his readers of their heavenly inheritance, he's kind of put their suffering into a little bit of perspective. He says that it's actually, I know it's tough, but remember it's not indefinite. It has a cut-off point. Uh, it is a, for a short time when compared to our eternal inheritance. Uh, when we are derided because of our faith, we, we have choices. Uh, we, we can roll over and just go with the tide, uh, or we can, we can stand firm and we can cop it. Satan hates it when we do that. Because in verse 7, when we stand firm, what does it do? Well, it, it proves that our faith is genuine. It proves that we're not just in it for the fun. We're not playing at being Christians. And I think that that was the lesson that Satan, that Satan received when we're going to press on. We're going to stand firm. That was the lesson that Satan received when Job just stood firm. Uh, despite everything that Satan could throw at him, because it proved that in the end, Job was able to say that I know that my Redeemer liveth. My Redeemer lives. But secondly, if we stand firm here, what Paul says, Peter says here in verse 7, that as we stand firm, that our faith, which he says is greater worth than, than gold, which actually doesn't compare because it, it perishes, our faith has actually proved genuine and it results in praise, glory and honour on that last day when we finally see Jesus, when he's revealed to us, that Jesus is praised and honoured and glorified through us. How about that? How about that? Now, in one sense, in one sense, it was easier for Peter to stand firm for Christ than it was for these Cappadocian and Bithynian and Asian Christians because what, what's the advantage that Peter's had? Well, he knew Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. He, was, he saw the miracles. Uh, he was there at the trial. He was the first apostle on the scene at the empty tomb. And uh, the resurrected Jesus had eaten with Peter and had... Um, had forgiven Peter and had commissioned Peter to go out into all the world and preach. Peter, Peter knew Jesus. Peter knew Jesus. But these guys, a whole bunch of different races, different kinds of Gentiles, Celts even, you know, they're living 30 years later in Cappadocia and Bithynia and in verse 8, Peter can barely contain himself because... This is what he thinks about them. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How about that? In the early days of the church, most of the persecution came from, from Jews because, because they were cranky when um, people uh, were getting lights come back on. I can see it. It's happening above you now. 
one at a time. It's like those. It's beautiful. <laughs> but yes, Peter. Peter um, the, in the, the, the early church suffered um, persecution from Jews because they, they would get cranky about people becoming Christians, particularly the Gentiles had started going to the synagogue and now they're being taken away and uh, sort of putting their trust in Jesus. And they got cranky because uh, converts were not obeying the law of Moses. And for early Christians, particularly Gentiles, there was a temptation to think, well, hey, maybe there's something in what they're saying. Maybe, you know, this is a bit second rate in comparison to having a temple and sacrifices and priests and all that sort of thing. And the temptation for them to slide away from the gospel and back into Old Testament Judaism was, was a real temptation. Well, in verses 10 through to 12... Uh, Peter again firms up their hope in Jesus. Let me read that for you. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them. How about that? The Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets. The Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and even angels long to look into these things. Uh, what's he saying there? Well, summary, it has, Old Testament, New Testament, it has always been about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It was the Spirit of Christ that was working in the Old Testament prophets. They, they taught about the sufferings of the Christ and, and the, the glory that was to follow, but they, they, they didn't know, it hadn't been revealed to them, how and when and that would take place. It was a mystery to them, but this mystery has now been revealed. Uh, it is only after Christ's resurrection that by that same Holy Spirit that the great mystery is revealed through the preachers of the gospel of Jesus. Notice, who is it that the Old Testament prophets were serving? Well, Peter says they were serving you. They were serving you who have now heard the gospel of Jesus. So there's nothing inferior. Uh, what they have is actually the, the full revelation that the Old Testament only pointed towards. Friends, the, the great power of the gospel is that it changes people's lives. And a huge revelation in the first century is that the gospel can change anyone's life. God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Cappadocians. He's the God of the Asians. He's the God of the Bithynians. He's the God of Galatians. He's the God of Australians. He's the God of people who were swindlers and greedy and idolaters and immoral and thieves and, but yet who are now one people, united, changed, standing firm, 
to honour God in a context where people don't know him and doing so because we have a heavenly inheritance. Uh, Peter says here, and I don't know if you noticed it, that right at the end he says, even angels long to look into these things. I think it seems we've got more knowledge than what the angels actually have because we've got the full revelation of the gospel. Um, Paul goes a bit further than that in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about the church that he says that um, uh, God's plan was that, is that the, the, the heavenly authorities, that the, that the angels, that they look upon the Christian church and they go, wow, 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 who would have thought this is amazing? Look at what God has done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All of these people, different races, different backgrounds, different... All sinful people. And now what are they doing? They're all now honouring Wow. The angels get absolutely thrilled and excited because the church is such a wonderful thing. Wonderful. What God has done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we live as strangers and aliens like exiles, even here in Australia. A few years back... Uh, I was on a panel which interviewed candidates for a job. That's not the sort of thing I do every day. And most of the time I do it, I do it with Christian people, but this was not necessarily with Christian people. It was a job which involved uh, working amongst young people in a secular environment. One of the applicants was a Christian. And it was interesting to see this from the other side. Uh, she was a standout. Uh, she, she had the right qualifications. She had good qualifications. She had a, a warm personality. She was really nice. Uh, it was when she was asked about her life and how she would get on with youth that things became uncomfortable. Because in that context, she said that she was a Christian and... In answer to a particular question, she revealed that she did not sleep around. She was a young woman in her mid-twenties. She did not sleep around. Uh, I thought, great, good qualities, <laughs> terrific. But no, uh, it was for that reason that she did not get the job. She did not get the job. And that, that's not speculation. I was, I was in the room. I was... I was outnumbered, I, I spoke for her, but she was dismissed as being offensive and judgmental because she said, I don't sleep around, even though she'd work, on, work really well with youth. <sighs> I thought, wow, <laughs> this is the Australia we live in. And at times we might feel that we're treated in a similar way in different respects, in different contexts, in different environments. How do we deal with that? Well, let's keep perspective, shall we? Let's, let's praise God for his great mercy to us in Jesus. Let's remember that we have a heavenly inheritance and let's stand firm and not give in to our world. Because it's only as we are different, only as we are a light, 
that people will actually say, hey, maybe it's worth being Christian. Anyway, let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, your great wisdom uh, in the church that uh, through the death and resurrection of Jesus you've drawn together all kinds of different people. Father, we thank you that we uh, don't need to rely on the things of this world but that we have have an eternal inheritance. And we pray, Father God, that in times when we're feeling that we're kind of out of kilter with those around us and we maybe need to take a stand that um, we'd be prepared to do so knowing that we really want to honour you and knowing that we're not living for the accolades or the uh, possessions or the things which this world offers us and we pray that through our witness that uh, some people would be brought out of the darkness and into the light and uh, find the joy and the hope that we in fact have and we pray this in jesus name amen